Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Focusrite, supplying hardware and software products used by professional and amateur musicians, which enables the high-quality production of music. Focusrite, sound is everything. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joe Wanasek, and Eyal Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am Eyal Levy. And with me is special guest, Mr. Jacob Hansen. I'm sure you guys know who he is, but if you don't, you should know. He's worked with bands like Volbeat, Camelot, Epica, Boarded, Doro, Tear, Amaranth, many, many others. Plays guitar for power metal band Pyramaze, and he owns Hansen Studios in Denmark. I love his stuff, and... Um, I implore you to check it out. Welcome, Jacob. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I appreciate you taking the time. I've been a fan of your productions for a little while now. I've always been uh, particularly interested in your vocal sounds because they're so they're so polished. Okay. You do a really, really good <laughs> job of getting things to sound so heavy, but then you hear the vocals and the vocals sound like straight up pop productions. Yeah, thank you. I th I think that's actually what I'm aiming for anyway. So so I guess that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I would <laughs> say so. I have a, a question, Pyramids. Do you guys have a... Uh, I'm wondering if this is the same band I'm thinking of. Do you have a keyboard player named Jonah? Yeah, we do. Yeah. I know Jonah from a long time ago. Oh, from cool. From his uh, one of his old bands, Blood Promise. Yeah, all right. From like ten years ago, more and more, uh, they recorded in my basement of my old old studio, like okay. three studios ago, yeah. uh, when they were trying to get signed. So I just that's remember. cool. It's a small world. There you go. Yeah, yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> ha have you been in the band from the beginning? No, I haven't. But um, the guys who started it are friends of mine, and they're um, they're obviously from Denmark. And uh, I think they they were looking for a keyboard player, and uh, I have really no idea how they got a hold of Jonah. But but that just ended. Um, like that and he came to my studio when I first started back that must also be maybe in 2002 or three or something like that I can't really remember but way back <laughs> I feel yeah. it is and I just started and yeah I'm talking this was a long time ago yeah really yeah and he was a small kid and he came to my studio and recorded a uh, the keyboard parts for the first Pyramaze album, and I was a producer on on all the albums, so that that's why when they lost their uh, main guitarist, the main songwriter, they they asked me to to help them out. And how do you guys keep a band together for so long? That's actually <laughs> kind of incredible. Yeah, actually, yeah, uh, there was some kind of a break. I mean, when when the when the main guy he he left the band in. Uh, I don't really know when, but uh, yeah. Anyway, it, uh, there was a, a long break of maybe like four or five years where they didn't do anything, and and uh, I think Jonah kind of he he started it again somehow, got the guys back together, except for that uh, 
except for the bass player and and the the main guitarist and and that was uh, when they asked me to to help them out and and then it took a couple of years before we really got things started and everything got going so yeah i think they had a a break of i think it took maybe five or six years uh, from uh, the last uh, album release to the first one where i was uh, on it which is called disciples of the sun so i guess if you count the break the band hasn't been together that long actually whenever i've had long distance relationships with girls i've always <laughs> said that uh, uh you know if we were together for a year but maybe got together eight times for oh, yeah. like yeah, a, I know what a you week mean. at yeah. a time yeah it's actually <laughs> It's really, we've only been together eight weeks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with a lot of breaks in the middle. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. But yeah, and and this is maybe like that actually, yeah. But but maybe that's also why it, it I mean, we don't really get tired of each other because we, we hardly ever, ever see each other. And when we do see each other, it's it's like a, it's fantastic. It's, it's uh, you know, it's a great get together, you know, so... <laughs> that sounds like the perfect situation. It actually. is. It's, it is really, yeah. The thing I hated about being in a band was being around the band. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> touring was cool sometimes, but after about five days, I'd get over it and I hated everybody and yeah. was ready to get back home or go back that's, to the studio. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's so how that, I feel as well. Yeah. <laughs> so you so you definitely prefer the studio. I do, yeah, and I can leave and I can uh my studio is um is located where I live now so I can just, you know, whenever I've not, you know, I can't just leave in the middle of everything. Um but I can get a, you know, some time off from the from the people in the studio from bands. And not that I hate people, but but you know how it it suddenly, <laughs> you know, it it kind of Sometimes things, you know, gets to you, and and you you need a break, and and that's hard in a in a tour bus, I think, and that's why I've only been touring twice, yeah, with my old well, old band. You know, some one thing I was just talking about this with some producers that uh, we think that almost every single producer ever gets called lazy behind their back, but actually, it's not that they're lazy. It's that being around bands for too long sucks the life right out of you. Yeah. It's very intense <laughs> it for is. some reason. Yeah. So like it's not it's not that you're lazy or don't wanna be around them. It's more that you just need to get away from them so that you can recharge your soul. Yeah. I and think. Yeah, I think you're right. Plus that it's I mean it maybe comes out a little harsh, but it's not people that you choose to be together with it's 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 people that you quote has to work with um yes so it's it maybe they're you know not your type of people really some of them <laughs> and that uh, <laughs> that that can be uh, a challenge uh, even though i think that uh, that it's sometimes also great fun to to you know to learn, learn new people get to know new people and 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 work with uh with people where your best uh, psychology skills <laughs> comes up or, <laughs> or the lack of them, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think it, it takes a lot of work to, to be together with, uh, with the same people for a long period of time. And yeah, 
it's it's good that I mean that you do work with uh, with parts of the band all the time. I mean, one day you maybe work with, or, or a couple of days you work with the singer and then the bass player and then the guitarist. And so it's not all of them all at once. That, that That's too much. <laughs> so when you're producing an album, do you do things in a specific order or do you, uh, do you set up so that you can work on whatever you want at any time? I'm just wondering, because I know that myself and... Uh, You know, my partner Joey, we did this independent of each other, but when we record, we'll set up stations so that you can bounce around. You'll have the vocal set up, the guitar set up, the bass set up, and the drum set up all at the same time so that the moment you're losing inspiration on one thing, you can jump right to the other thing instead of just going straight from the beginning. Yeah, that's a that's a great idea, and I do that um, in... In a way, although I like to finish the the drums before I move on to all the other things, because I think that you know, one day the drums are are great sounding, and and overnight the heads get they, yes. they get weird, and and you need your drum tech to come in and maybe change things, and it gets a little. I mean, if I have if if I have plenty of time and plenty of money to to change the heads and everything, then I I'll do it. But I'd like to make sure the drums are are done, and then that's it, and then we can move on. And then I, like you, have have stations of or or whatever. I have everything set up so we can just you know play one song bass and then do some vocals. We can do some backing vocals. We can do percussion. We can do you know everything. So so. That is more or less how I work. However, it is sometimes with some bands and in some productions, I I like to have things done and then say we're done and then we move on. Also because sometimes it's um, there are members that are going, you know, oh I have to leave the twenty second <laughs> because yes. uh, my mom has a birthday party or something, and then we need to make sure that his stuff is done before he he leaves, obviously, and and and. Sometimes those things uh, dictate how I I work, and even though that's a little annoying, because uh, then you're sometimes race, racing against time and and trying to finish things before you're actually ready to finish stuff, and that that's a little weird at times. But I manage. I'm I'm used to working under pressure, <laughs> so yeah. I think it's hard to find a situation where there isn't some sort of pressure involved but you know the the whole working in stations thing for me developed out of necessity for having to try to get vocals in earlier yeah. so that the vocalists wouldn't blow their voice out because yeah. um, I guess the way that uh that I learned to record which was very traditional traditional for metal because metal's a very untraditional style of recording but where you do everything and then the last two days you do vocals so you spend three or four weeks doing all the music and then spend two days on vocals and the vocalist just better nail it yeah that's and that's yeah that's just terrible so so dumb yeah it's so bad yeah so it is. i tried to get the vocalist started from almost the beginning like maybe once drums are done or something yeah I, I think yeah, that that's that's cool, and and uh, the thing with that is that most of the times, well, it depends, but but sometimes I'm not 
ready with the how do you say all oh, the cue guitars were terribly played or they were you know maybe there was some we did some weird arrangements so we needed to you know work on that so i i i'd like to make sure that when the singer comes in he or she listens to something that sounds pretty good and and if it's too early on in the in the how do you say in the production it it it's sounding a little crazy everything so but but yeah you're right i mean when i started recording when i was in a band back then that was exactly the scenario we we spent maybe two weeks recording and then i was the singer of that band and they you know i had like a weekend or maybe not even three days to do a full album and and of of course i i ruined myself and the vocals on those albums are just crappy sounding obviously because that's that's yeah it's impossible to do it like that actually so i like to i like to spread out the the vocal recordings and i like to make sure that we start with vocals and maybe do one day of vocals and then maybe sometimes a couple of days of rest for the vocalist because the first day they're always really excited and they push themselves and i i, I can do four songs and then <laughs> and then they can't because the next day they they can't even talk no so i tried to to save people's energy a little bit maybe two days off and then i do more some more vocals and and of course as much as possible as long as they sound good and if there's a day when when where they feel like ah oh, it's not it's not working for me today we can just you know move on to whatever needs to be done bass guitars solos everything yeah i think that that's great i mean really vocals are the priority in my opinion they are what will make the difference yeah on in my opinion on whether or not the record is a success or a failure for the most part so to not treat them like like gold i think is kind of dumb yeah well, you you're right but sometimes i feel like even though i try to make sure that i have plenty of time for vocals Sometimes it just you know ah oh, shit the drums took maybe yes <laughs> oh, then they took you know one week too much or ah oh, and then oh I know where that's gonna you know lead me that's gonna lead me working after you know extra hours on on the vocals and or just hope I have everything before the band's flight is going or whatever <laughs> it, there's always yeah I mean the, the, maybe that's also a good thing that it's never it's never a perfect session it's always stress at the end and it's always chaos you know <laughs> but have, yeah have you ever had a situation that doesn't end up in chaos at the very end because i can't think of one yeah maybe i've i have a few and then i get really uh you know then i go oh shit something's wrong because this <laughs> just it went so smooth and maybe it's maybe everything is just shit <laughs> because it's supposed to be crazy at the end where everybody's like ah, how are we gonna make this and uh, i think that's that's just um that's a, a major part of the game i think everybody feels like that and and all the bands that i work with when they come back they're like this time it's gonna be different with uh, the time pressure and, and it's not different it's exactly the same <laughs> I, I forget what uh what this is called but there's an idea that the amount of work that you have 
will always stretch out to fill the entire amount of time that you have allotted to work on it. Yeah. So no matter how much time or how much work you have, somehow it will always stretch perfectly to where you have just enough time to get it done. Yeah. Scientific phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it is like that. And and sometimes I mean when I when I went from the you know, the two week album recordings when I used to do that back in the days, when when the bigger budgets came in and, and I could do long stretches of uh, production. Um, it just seemed like in the beginning we were being really, you know, things were happening. And then in the middle of the, the whole period, it seemed like, it seemed like uh, everybody was like coming in late and, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe, um, maybe we leave early today and go drink coffee and, uh, you know, yeah. Uh, it's like that. It's it's hard to keep the 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 energy level really high all the time, and maybe we're not supposed to. But that's how it you know it also ends up like you're saying that that even if you have like two three months to do the production in, you'll be stressed out the last couple of days. That's how it is. Without fail. Yeah. So you're a guitar player first. How? What made you get into recording? How did that happen? Yeah, I think it's probably the same story as everybody else on this uh, <laughs> program. <laughs> but yeah, I you know I played in a band, played guitar, and and I was was the vocalist as well. And 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 the studio work was just really exciting for me. I was never the type of guy that would be really happy about playing um, live. It was fine, and I did it, and and but it didn't give me anything special, really. It was just yeah, cool. But being creative and and being in the studio, and and I think maybe from when I was a kid, I was just you know, if I had the chance of watching something or some band recording in a in a in a studio, I was like, yeah, this you know, <laughs> all those uh, buttons and and things to to work on and compressors and shit even though I didn't know what it was but uh, that just turned me on some somehow and uh, I think I started to yeah also also the fact that when when I when my band went into the studios in in Denmark uh, they most of them didn't really have any clue of of recording heavy metal and they were really you know they just looked at us like we were insane when we were distorting our <laughs> guitars and playing ultra fast drums and shit and i thought hey maybe, well, i mean i can do this because i know what what it sounds like in my head and i i i, I kind of know how i want to how the end result has to be even though i had no idea how to get there but then i just i borrowed some equipment from some some people and i rented some gear and i just started recording my own band and, and local bands. And even though it sounded pretty shitty, it had something... I mean, it sounded like metal. It didn't sound like somebody who didn't know what they were doing. Um, and and that, that just developed like that. And suddenly I saw myself actually being more interested in that than playing in a band. <laughs> it's it's so funny, man, how that's that is such a common story with so many of the guys that we've talked to on here that they started as musicians. Yeah. They went to a studio and 
nobody knew how to record metal. And <laughs> it could be could be like a million dollar studio, but if they don't know how to record metal, it's gonna be garbage. Yeah. What comes out. Lots of the guys who've been on the podcast or nail the mix started recording metal because nobody around them did it. And yeah. they needed to get their own band recorded. Yeah, that's exactly how or more or less how, how I got into the, the whole game. And and I know more people who, you know, who are telling me the, the same story and I think yeah, that's very common. That's I mean, that's how I started too. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, I was looking for studios for my band and uh I got the prices to record an album and they were like ridiculous and then i realized that none of these people at these studios even recorded metal in the first place so we were going to be spending like twenty thousand dollars to have enough time to record something in a genre that these people never even worked with yeah that's insane really yeah why not just learn how to do it myself yeah exactly so you quickly found that you enjoyed working in the studio more than even being the musician yourself yeah i i mean i like being a musician i i like playing guitar or i like being creative writing and and uh working with all the the aspects of of the music part of being in a band but but that you know that other part of being in a band uh, the one that that you know you have to tour you have to promote yourself you have to get out there and and what if it fails and ah oh, shit <laughs> that's just yeah. not i mean plus i'm now i'm i feel pretty old <laughs> and i don't uh yeah there's no chance that i will ever i mean quote unquote make it with my music or, or my bands and it doesn't matter anymore because it it i don't care i just i really just enjoy playing guitar and writing and I mean recording guitar and that that's the fun part if I don't really care if people listen to what I do as long as I feel it's that I did something and I've written a song and yeah that's cool with me so do you write songs for your clients a lot or help them improve their songs I don't do that that much uh, i i help them improve if it's i mean if it's necessary i i try to make sure that if that i that I, that i hear what whatever songs that the band um is supposed to be recording when they come in and if i feel there is room for musical improvement i will work with them on arrangements or vocal lines or whatever and and that's a fun part but there's something i i have a little bit of a feeling that many metal bands or maybe that's just the ones that i work with um are not so happy about getting help from from outside even though they respect me and, and know what i can do but but they're they want to do everything themselves more or less and i understand that but sometimes you know working with this for many many years and listening to music eight hours a day um every day for the yeah for the last 20 years or something like that i have you know a great experience that that there's no need why they shouldn't really use that for something but it's i mean sometimes it's it's a little hard to 
get where where they they appreciate that 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 I'm coming with ideas and and it's a it's a fine line when you can do it and when you can't and when they will be upset about it. Well, you work with some bands that have some pretty great musicians in them. And yeah. or bands that have a very very defined sound. Yeah. Like let's just say two examples. Volbeat is a band that has a very defined sound. Yeah. Um, exactly. You can spot them yeah. no matter if you've heard the song or not. The moment they start playing, you know it's them. And that's a actually a, a pretty important thing because it I I'm I would never and I have never changed a thing in in Volbeat songs because when Michael comes in and he has a song the singer and, and main or songwriter he's uh, it's done and it sounds like him and it's there's no I mean wh- why would I change I could say oh it would be cool to have this really weird chord here but <laughs> then then I've ruined everything so that's why I would never ever change things because it has his uh his unique signature and and that's I'm there there'll be no reason to to change it the the only thing I've done on those albums um is uh doing backing vocals uh, uh since yeah actually up till the last two albums it was uh, me doing all the backing vocals just because you didn't really know how to do harmonies and uh, I did <laughs> and he would be like yeah you sing him yeah sure but that but that's a perfect example I think that being a really good producer means knowing when to back off and to not impose your own musicality on it but then also knowing when your musical skills are needed yeah. and so if the artist already has as defined of a vision as they can have and the skills to pull it off that's great but then if you realize that's all there except it needs some vocal harmonies and they just don't know how boom perfect yeah and you knew how to do it yeah and that's sure. where i'm sure that if they needed help in other departments too you could have helped too but uh i think it just it takes understanding when to contribute and when not to contribute exactly and i i i think i would rather even though i if i have the feeling that something could be changed here and i would suggest something and i i would you know be very gentle <laughs> and suggest that hey maybe we should or have you thought about changing this and if if they're like no 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 and then i i would back off um, immediately because i mean even though it for me and maybe uh, we never know but but it could be uh, an important change if the band is not interested in in the change i would feel terrible to to yeah like you're saying impose that onto them and uh, yeah it's it's um but it it is a fine line and, and it's very i mean how do you say it it's a delicate thing you have to be careful with uh, with those things and and sometimes it's also just a matter of saying you know if they're like ah, i'm not sure about this riff and I'm like okay what else have you got and maybe they have something you know better and and they they come up with that themselves uh but i just you know i'm the guy who's just saying maybe try something else and they then they do something else and that's cool well like you said it's delicate earlier you said that you have to use your psychological skills and i think that this is a perfect example of understanding 
body language and understanding what people's reactions mean to things. And so when you make a suggestion, if your psychological skills are on point, then you'll know whether or not you should keep going with your suggestion or you should immediately stop. Yeah, you're right. And I think that that's crucial to know because every band's different and every they'll all react differently to different things, different types of suggestions. I mean, what about Amaranth, which is much more, I guess, musician-friendly in a way? Yeah. That's also a case of... I mean, my input in in Amaranth uh, is is more like a. I just, you know, I'm not gonna be. Uh, how do you say? Gonna be a co-writer or arranging songs or something. I, you know, because what Olaf comes up with is is as well. I think uh, so unique. So you can't really. It's actually done when he. <laughs> comes with uh, comes up with a song it, it, everything is in his head and what i have to do is that i i capture everything and make sure everything is sounding the right way and i don't i don't even have to say uh, tell him if if there's a part that that we both feel is not working we can just you know look at each other and and he'll he'll know it as well and he'll oh, i know exactly what to change there so <laughs> you just you just give him the look and yeah, he's like the, yeah, yeah exactly. that part sucks yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but he's such a fantastic i think songwriter so he i mean it's it's um from the very beginning that that was just you know he just came in with those songs and 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 i was just like yeah everything's just working here and Everything's so well thought out. There's no need for me to sit there be and be uh, the music teacher. It's, it's actually the other way around where Olaf is teaching me stuff. So <laughs> that's cool. I'm very curious now because the vocals to that, to that, that they have, man, that sounds like straight up pop, like yeah. straight up really good pop. Now, Amaranth is a band that, you know, here in the States, people who listen to bands like Nightwish or whatever listen to them, but it's not like something that's on the radio or anything. No. You know, it's not like top 40 music here. No, it's not, no. But I'm aware that that type of music is a lot bigger in Europe, and it sounds like, like I said, like straight up pop. So can you tell me a little bit about the approach to... uh dealing with the vocals, writing them, or do they come in pre-written? How do you approach the production to them? Is it a pop approach in the mix? Like, I'm very curious about this. Yeah, the funny thing is that there's, I mean, there's really little difference between how I work with them and, and many other bands. It's just, it's just the way everything is arranged and... Mm, the way that that Elise also sounds, and I, of course we're we're aiming for that polished pop vocal sound. That that's that's the goal, of course. And 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 um, what we do is like, of course we take uh, maybe twenty takes on a verse, maybe forty, maybe fifty. And then I there's nothing really out of the ordinary, but but then I comp it and uh, and I. Of course, tune everything and make sure everything is is right. And for the for the backing vocals, we we layer them 
pretty heavily. I mean, there's sometimes maybe ah, 20, <laughs> 30 tracks of, of backing vocals because there are so many counter melodies and harmonies and shit going on in, in the background that it's it's crazy. But it's it's also a big part of that sound. And then I think one of them, not the, the most important tool, but a, a very important tool in that uh, uh, in those productions is the the synchro arts vocal line because you have to make sure that everything lines up. You can't. I mean, the must. I love that plugin. Yeah, it's it's just. I mean, I can't track or work on vocals without that because it's you know a small ending and a little s that's a little late instead of just hand uh, editing and and shit i i would just you know the singer would be oh shit i i was a little late there or that thing went longer than the other one and i was like yeah fine whatever it's not a (laughs) it's fine and then i would uh, vocaline everything you know because it it's just got to sit as one massive thing it's it's more like i mean some of the vocals or or the the backing vocals on the amaranth albums are more like a, a huge pad from a keyboard actually because they they're they're just there's so many notes and so much shit going on there that it's it's crazy but the i think um the funny thing is that that me and Olaf kind of clicked on that we we both i mean i grew up with abba that that was just such a huge part of my of i mean the soundtrack for my childhood really and the same with all of they had great harmonies they had these massive harmonies and you know everything double tracked and so i that sound is you know that is what i hear in my head i think when i hear amaranth and and, and that's yeah in some way that's what i'm going for but also the the more modern or the, the Max Martin type of ways of doing uh, top forty vocals that that's also a huge inspiration. Well, it straight up sounds like that style of production. Yeah, and it, it's supposed to sound like that. So if if we nail it, then it's it's really cool. <laughs> can, can we talk a, a little bit about the the vocal chain that you would use for something like that? Yeah, of course. Um, on all the Amaranth albums, except the latest one, we used um, the the microphone is my Neumann U87, which is on 99.9 of all my productions that I record myself. And on the new one, it was a, a U47 FET mic. That's a nice. little bit more... Uh, nice sounding which is uh, we thought that was really cool we we had a shootout or we did in an ab test and we felt like it the the niceness of the u47 was just working better for for the new album and um that goes into my neumann v76 pv76 i think it's called uh mic pre old 70s crap <laughs> Sounds fantastic, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that uh, goes into a Neumann W four nine five EQ, which takes a little low end out and adds a little top end. It's a very sweet EQ, but it I just add I think like two dB around two dB lift on on ten kilohertz and 
that goes into what does it? Oh, it goes into Siemens uh, U273, which is a, an old 70s compressor, and it just adds a little bit of uh, richness and fatness. And then I slam everything on with my Purple Audio MC77. And that's actually the, the vocal chain. And, and it sounds it sounds pretty ready already from, from that chain going into Pro Tools. And I, I, I just, um, in the mix, I would compress a little bit again, maybe sometimes DS a little bit and EQ a little bit. It's just subtle things that I'm I'm doing really and um, sometimes an L2 limiter on, on the on the vocal bus just to to keep it pretty firm and hold it back a little bit that's a very unique chain by the way I've that sounds like uh, sounds like it, it's gonna come in um, sounding like you said close to done but also yeah. I it, you're, it sounds like it, it's going to sound unique because I don't think that there's too many people using a chain like that. No, I don't think either. I mean, I think a lot of people are using the 1176 on the way in. I mean, yes, well that yeah. But that I think I don't know why. I just fell in love with that with all those old vintage German audio products and I have a bunch of that and and that chain just uh, i don't know it sounds fantastic i think uh, it just you know when you turn up the vocals and you start recording it it's already sounding pretty sweet and i'm not slamming the 1176 it's just you know taking off the the peaks and i i think that many singers also really like to sing with some compression on that that sounds great you know a, a hardware compressor is, is maybe you know that that's for me a good thing to use uh, when recording I, I don't think a software compressor can can do that much and has so so much color if I may say so <laughs> I agree we I was just hanging out with Taylor Larson because he just didn't nail the mix and he had just bought a Yuri 1176 yeah and I've used one of those for tracking vocals before as well and they just add something that that nothing else gives it. Yeah. It's just unique. It pushes the vocals in a way that's just great to listen to. It's a pleasure to listen to and it just makes them sound right. Yeah. It's it's hard to it's hard to explain, but I've never heard a plug-in or let alone other compressors be able to do it. Like a lot of the knockoff 1176s that come out now, I haven't heard them be able to quite do it the same way no. as the older stuff does it. Yeah, I don't know which one, because there are tons of uh, different ones I think Yuri did right, as far as I yeah. remember. I don't know which one is maybe the best or what, whatever. But I tried um, the Universal Audio reissue, the black one, and and I didn't really like it. And then I tried the Purple Audio MC77, and I really like that. And I can't really tell why, but but it's just, I mean, you just do. Yeah, I I do, and and it sounds great, and and it and the vocals are really easy for me to sit right in the mix. I feel I can just you know doesn't take much time then then I feel the work, vocals are working in in the mix and what I do when I get um, 
mixes that are with vocals that have been recorded okay with an okay mic, but with no compression or or little compression, and, and it doesn't really. Ah, you know, I fight and I put on 700 plugins and it doesn't really do the trick. Then I just run everything, all the vocals through my vocal chain without the preamp. I have a setup so I can just track, uh, kind of like reamp <laughs> the vocals, and then they sit right in the where I want them in the mix. That's a fantastic trick, I I think. That's actually something I've done too. It it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. I definitely feel like there's, I don't know, because I love plugins, but there's just something that uh, the proper outboard compressor does for vocals that. It's just untouchable. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I can, if I want to, I can slam a screamer vocal with, I mean, I can see the needle going nuts and and it seems like it's, the gain reduction is maybe 20 dBs, but I I don't hear it like that. It still sounds fantastic. <laughs> and we, if you do that with a plugin, it, it's just weird. You'll get weird things. You'll get too many S's and you'll get yeah, all kinds of unwanted artifacts, I think. So when you're doing vocals for a band like Aborted, for instance, which is nothing like Amaranth, yeah. <laughs> do, do uh, you know, his brutal death metal, um, yeah. do you approach it the same way, the U80, U87? I, I, I do, yes. It's, um, with Aborted, uh, Sven has been... He's, we've tried different things because he actually wants to do handheld mics most of the time. So I think, if I remember correctly, the last time, I think his his deep uh, vocals were SM7. Um, and the, the screamer vocals were just my U87. And actually, if I... If he wasn't like a guy with, you know, who wanted a handheld mic, I think we would just use the the U87. It sounds great for growling. I think there's no for me need to change it, and and it's the it's the same vocal chain with the same setup. It's just for me, it's just working on so many different styles. I think it's just yeah. <laughs> They're a cool band, by the way. I, I I've enjoyed their stuff for years. Yeah, good. Yeah, they are. Yeah, really. So I'm wondering, what's your approach then to uh, tracking drums? We've been talking about vocals for a little while. What are some of your favorite go-to microphones for tracking drums? What's your approach? I'm curious because you also said that you use a drum tech, and I use a drum tech every single time because I have a fantastic drum tech, and I've always just felt like even though I could tune the drums, I'd rather have an expert tuning them, and I'd rather be the guy saying, I like the way this sounds, I don't like the way this sounds, the tom is ringing a little weird, could you fix that? They need to ring less, ring more, and not blast out my ears hitting the drum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just want to be the one judging. Yeah, it's the same thing with me. I mean, I, I had this the same... I Actually, I had a period of time where I felt like, shit, I'm terrible at recording drums. They sound terrible. I had no idea what I was doing wrong. I, I felt I used the right mics and, you know, everything. And then I met this... Uh, this is actually a guy I've known for a long time, and he f- agreed on tuning drums for a project. I can't re- even remember how we got started. And um, then he tuned the drums, and I was like, 
Oh my god, it it literally changed from I mean, it was night and day and it changed everything for me and I was like, oh shit, I've never heard my drums sound so good. So that's of course, I mean, even though people would agree, but I don't think a lot of people use a drum tech or of course it's also a matter of finding a guy who knows what you want. And I mean, it it has to work for you. If if he's a type of guy that's tuning in a way so it doesn't work for you, then it's of course not good. But I mean, with my guy was called Martin. He he, we just clicked, and he's been doing everything for me for the last ten, maybe fifteen years, something like that. And um, it's it's such an important thing. And he would also be listening to cymbals and going, oh, wait a second, wait a second, for that chorus, please play on that one. <laughs> and uh, he's, <laughs> I mean, he's taught me stuff like that. And, and it's, it's, it's great. I would sometimes stop people recording and go in and, and say, please, let's, uh, when we do the next take, let's on the, we take this symbol for the chorus and when you hit the you know stuff like that because it's that makes a huge difference it does and it's something that that i feel like not a lot of people think about i mean it's always like the drummer is always looking at me going you're such an idiot <laughs> why because i'm not you know i'm not not dissing drummers but for many of them symbols are just symbols and they actually Many of them look at the price and then they buy the smallest ones because <laughs> they're the cheapest. And uh, so that's why I have a bunch of huge symbols that I normally use because, you know, I like hearing those big sounds of long crash sustain. Anyway, but um, that whole thing with working with a drum tech and a guy who understands drums because that's just such a actually the hardest part to record i think because there are so many things that can go wrong i mean halfway into the first verse of a song the snare can you know if there's a lock that's or a screw that's gonna that's not tightened it'll you know rattle and things like that it, it's falling apart and you you need to be you just have to know everything about drums to do that and to make them sound fantastic uh, I think you would agree. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah and I, I'd, rather, I'd rather have an expert helping me with that stuff. Exactly. For sure. Yeah, and and of course we learn. I mean, I, I've learned a lot from working with uh, my drum tech. But uh, then again, I, I can't. I really can't do a production without him. If if, if I mean serious business, because it's uh, he's just great, and he would sometimes uh, listen to, you know, he, he, he sometimes, uh, he's there doing the whole drum recording so he can go in and fix things, and and sometimes he would go like, for this song, Jacob, can we try another kick drum? And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, and then it makes, you know, such a difference. Yeah, that's, that's part of what I love about it, too, with my guy, is he'll bring different snares and give us options and so when i say i want more articulation in the ghost notes on this song he'll be like well why don't we try this snare the uh what it's made out of and its depth will help bring that out more than retuning our original snare yeah that's such a fantastic thing also because i mean even though it's something that i know of and i you know i can hear that something's wrong 
it's good for me to not think of that all the time. I maybe I can be more concerned with am I picking up everything right with my mics and pre's? Are they placed right? Is the song working? Is the tempo right? And you know all those things because there's so much to to deal with when you're laying down the the foundation of the song, which is the drums, and um, and if I also have to think about tuning and all kinds of things all at the same time, I would m- sometimes miss something, and and so it's great to have this, this guy sitting around and and listening to to the drums all the time. So uh, to everyone listening. Find yourself a great drum tech. Yes, or, I mean, yeah, and pay them <laughs> for their well, job. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say, or uh, convince the band. <laughs> yeah, of course. That uh, it's, wor- it's worth the expenditure. Yeah, it is. And sometimes I just, you know, if the, if the budget is terrible, I would still pay him out of my own pockets because it's... It, I've done that be, too. Yeah, because it, it's going to be... I'm gonna be sitting there and going, hmm, shit, the drums sound like crap, and <laughs> and I hate my life. <laughs> but uh, so I'd rather pay him, uh, you know. Anyway, but yeah, drum mics. Okay, let's let's see. Here's what I normally use, uh, and sometimes it change changes a little bit. But but kick drum is RE20 inside. That's uh, Electro Voice RE20. Oh, nice. Yeah, and outside. It's lately. It's been. I have a Neumann UM57, which is a tube mic, uh, fantastic sounding tube mic, and that's on the outside of the kick, even with a boarded. <laughs> uh, and snare is a Sennheiser MD441. I think I started using that like five, six years ago or something like that. Um, I actually used to use MD21, which is an Omnimic, a small, weird 60s reporter mic from Sennheiser as well. And that has a very distinct sound to it. And But the fact that it's Omni is a little weird because it's picking up all kinds of shit. But but I really like the sound of that. It's a little... It, it's a little scooped and has um, has a, some kind of lift in in a in a very pleasant area. I think for snare, I really like that. But I don't use it that much anymore. The four four one is more full sounding and 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 it's um, it doesn't pick up a lot of uh, bleed, which is uh, which is pretty good for snare. That's good. Makes a big difference. Yeah, it's it's a huge mic though, and but but. I think placement is is normally pretty okay with that one. I I can I can always just <laughs> make it fit somehow. And um and I have a condenser on the the bottom snare. It's normally something like AKG 451E, I think. Um I love those on there. Yeah, me too. Um and toms are MD 421 also Sennheiser. A very a German setup, actually, <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's for the um, for the rack toms. When it comes to floor toms, I really like using RE twenties there as well because they're uh, to me they're closer to kick drum, really, just with more tone in there. And I started, I think maybe ten years ago or something like that. I started miking. Oh, uh, maybe uh, not. Ten years. Anyway, I started miking the bottom head uh, 
of the toms. And to me, that made such a difference. And I've done that ever since. And I might get with a, with a small condenser, maybe also a AKG 451. And that's a, that's a fantastic thing because you can get a lot of attack and a lot of tone there and a lot of low end. Instead of the, how do you say, the, the top head would be more like a, a quick smack and then maybe a little bit of tone. And then I can, you know, compress and sculpt and, and really make the tom tone hit. I really, I think I'm a fan of the, how do you say, the fusion kit type sound. I mean, where the, mm-hmm. the tom, the, the toms are going goo with a little bit of a pitch bend. That's, that's what I want to hear in some way. And lots of, you know, tone and not just attack. So actually lively sounding drum kit. Sometimes I've noticed that if you get rid of too much of that ring, it makes it a little harder to mix because a lot of that ring disappears the moment you add guitars. Yeah. But it definitely helps it sound more alive, like you said. Yeah. And I, I'd rather have really long decay than than a short one because um, or sustain uh, because I can always gate it out if I feel it, it's in the way um, of something or I can I can manually edit and, and do fades or whatever but I mean normally it's just a matter of of putting on a gate and then choosing the, the decay time and making that work with the with the song or with with the drum kit and mm-hmm. from using a, a good drum tech I, I feel like it's I mean he he just make sure that everything is working and it's not being overly crazy all the time with the, with the toms hanging and and sustain everywhere but but yeah rather a lot of tone than only a smack because that will i mean that to me doesn't really work or it doesn't make sense to me really i want the i want to hear the the notes plus that, that i think that my drum tech are tuning toms in how is he tuning in thirds? I think, mm-hmm. or something like that, because he's always testing them <laughs> and and trying to play a melody on them because they have to be they're in in a in a certain pitch and he has a almost like perfect pitch. It's it's really interesting actually. That's a yeah. That's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but that really helps as well. Make everything sit and make things sound great. I think. Yeah, and um, mics, going back to that, for overheads, I use Neumann KM-I-84, vintage, old pair, sounds absolutely brilliant, I think. And then I have, um, actually, I'm a little spoiled because I use an M149 over the the whole kit to pick up um, some extra snare. It's like um, it's like a center overhead, but it's pointing towards the snare. And I I try to make I compress that that mic pretty hard, and I try to make the snare crack really hard in that uh, mic or that channel. So how how far above the snare do you put it? It's like it's maybe hanging. How do you say? How would you say? Like. A, Somewhere around half a meter, if that makes sense for you, over the drummer's yeah. head. Somewhere around that, so it's maybe like uh, it depends. It's a little. So for you, for you Americans, that's three feet. Yeah. So half a meter is one and a half feet, Americans. Okay. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> the metric system. Yeah, and that 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 mic really. I mean, blending that in gives it a really nice crack, and I can I can kind of sculpt that to sound. I can put a little bit of extra low in there and get a really f- extra some extra fatness on the snare there as well. That's a the cool thing I think. I've done that with an SM7B sometimes. Yeah. And it's it's worked really nicely. Yeah, I think so. It's a it's a little crazy with facing <laughs> sometimes between <Yes. laughs> overheads and uh, and other things. But yeah, but if it goes completely, uh, or if it's it's if I feel like it's it's being out of phase or it's or, or something's weird, I use uh, auto align from Sound Radix to to make sure it it sits right. But that's that's a good plugin. Yeah, it's it's really neat. It's, it's cheap and it's, it's great. Yeah, room mics or yeah, I use um, I use two KM one hundred and eighty four Neumanns as well, and it's a uh, how do you say the the overheads are by the way X Y all the time, and uh, the rooms are spaced pair, and then I recently I started uh, doing an I have an MS set up with a, a Neumann SM69 stereo mic, a FET mic as well. And that's, uh, that's a really cool thing. I think I can get a really uh, wide feel of the cymbals. I place that like two meters in front of the kit and I keep it in the cymbal height. So I actually pick up, a, I, of course I pick up the whole kit, but a lot of cymbals. And that gives me some a really wide feeling or I can really control the wideness of the uh, or the space of the symbols with that. You know, I, I'm actually curious about something about yeah. the XY on the overheads because the traditional thing for metal is a spaced pair. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious of what it is you like about the XY overheads. To me, it picks up the whole kit and I... I don't know why. I, I know that it, it's for metal. It's it's very traditional to yeah. To, how do you say to to be able to hear where the 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 symbols are being hit, or it's like extreme left or ex- extreme right with the yeah. symbols. And I didn't really like that. It's it's not it's not what I'm going for. I'm going for more like a. I want to pick up a stereo image of the whole kit, and it and if you look at the drum kit from the. Yeah, if it's just a drum kit. It's it's actually not that extreme. Or if you stand in front of it, it's not extreme left and right. The the symbols. I was not really going for that. So that so the X and X Y system just worked for me also because it's uh, it's very easy with face. Uh, face. You don't get all the the problems that a spaced pair would be giving you. I I felt like I actually had this thing where I felt like a spaced pair was something you would. Or people would pick up from a live situation where that's maybe the best and easiest way of, of miking up a, a drum kit. And whereas the XY is more, you would probably ever, would you have, I've never seen a, a, a live situation with a, an XY. Neither have I. And I think that I felt like it was something that kind of, Somebody took it from from the live situation and took it into the studio. I don't. I'm I'm not a scientist, and I don't know very much about the physics about why. And you know, I just feel like X Y was 
picking up what I wanted to hear. It's not very wide, stereo-wise, but it picked up the whole kit in a very nice way, I thought, and, and the whole, uh, you know, all of the symbols. And then if I feel like I'm missing something, if, if a guy has a splash extreme right or left or a China that's, uh, you know, far away, I would, of course, spot mic that. And the same with ride and hi-hat and, and blend that in. But I would also never put hi-hats or ride just, you know, 100% uh, left or 100% right. It's always like 60, 65% or something like that. Even though I, I, want, I want to hear a, a wide drum kit, I, I don't want to hear it, you know, extremely crazy wide. <laughs> okay, that, that makes that makes sense. I also don't pan those hard. I always try to pan them where I feel like they sit in the stereo image yeah. of the overheads. Yeah, makes sense. Which is usually in the 60% range. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I've just seen people going completely nuts with panning on drums and, yeah. <laughs> well, are you familiar <laughs> with LCR mixing? Uh, yes, although I haven't done it no i've never done it either one of my partners here does it and his mixes sound great i've just never tried it but literally everything is either hard panned or centered and that's yeah. it it's interesting yeah and it's it's working <laughs> yeah it, it does work when i've seen it work i always wonder if i just spend too much time working on things that don't matter <laughs> like, yeah that might be <laughs> That, that, that could be the case for me as well. It's just, and sometimes, you know, it's, sometimes you get a little, you don't really know if it's just an old habit you or, you know, I can't really tell if it's a habit I just picked up and, and I just keep on doing the same thing. And then I don't even know if if something else would work better. better. Um, that, that's just how it is. <laughs> so let's move on to bass. I'm wondering what you're looking for in a good bass tone like what i feel like bass is one of the hardest things to get right at first but it's also one of the most important things to get right because it's your found foundation for everything yeah the funny thing is that that you can actually hear on a bass instrument that um if it's going to work or if it's going to sound right i think you can hear that just by picking a string yes you know with the bass just standing and, and not plugged in you can hear if the sustain is there if the attack is there and there are so many small things that makes bass sound right and for me the the what's actually in my head in some way is uh, the the sound when you hit a low note on a piano you know the the hit on that on the string you know clang that that's actually mm -hmm. what i want to hear and i want to hear tons of overtones the worst thing is like a, a dull bass where you only have the the note that you're playing and and you if you if you look at a uh, an analyzer you will see a spike on that note and nothing else that's just that's the worst thing it it's that's never going to sit in a mix i feel um so it for me, the bass has to be great. I mean, it it makes a huge difference. It's such an important thing, and it it's and and they're hard to find. I've only maybe recorded 
two, three great sounding basses in my whole life. <laughs> it's a little crazy to say that, but that's the truth. And um, it needs new strings. And I would, if I decide and if it's if I'm allowed to spend money on strings, then I change the strings after every song. Because, yeah, absolutely. especially the low one, because it will die eventually and it, it's going to die in an hour or so. And most people and bass players look at me and go, what the fuck are you thinking? And, and I would say, are your strings new? And they would be, uh, yeah, they're like six months old. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why I have an arsenal of strings all the time. And I sometimes if people come in and they have... You know, even though I tell them bring tons of strings, and then then they think that tons are two packages, then uh, I have my own to put on. That's very important. Man, I don't even let them warm up on new strings. Like change, yeah, because they literally do die in like an hour. <laughs> Plus, I, they they look at me these people, and I run around with uh, all kinds of uh, cleaning things, fast fret and and lubric. And I dry off strings, and I'm, you know, total nerdy about that. And and people are like, what? Well, what are you doing? And uh, <laughs> but it's such an important thing, especially for bass, and guitars also. But bass, yeah. And what else is important? Yeah, of course, um, a good, clean-sounding DI. I think I, I've sometimes used a, a DI that is coloring a little bit. Uh, but that's I don't I for metal that I don't I want to hear a little bit more clean and I want to be make sure that everything is is kind of untouched so to speak. But for some rock productions I've I've recorded through Neve DIs and and you know cranked them a little bit. But yeah, good basses are hard to find. I mean I have a Music Man Stingray in my studio that I use from time to time, which I like. It's not perfect it is still it's still a little weird sounding sometimes because it's hard to have great sounding down tuned uh, bass but lately i heard actually on the the latest uh, epica that i did i i was really impressed with the bass sound on that one and that that was a dingwall bass and i i was like yeah i okay i got to buy one of those and put that in my studio and whenever bass players come in i would hand them that one and go this is the one you're playing on <laughs> <laughs> I had a Fender jazz bass for a while and I felt that way about it too I would make everybody use it yeah they they can sound fantastic I've heard fantastic sounding jazz basses as well also precision but oh yeah but they're like um, some sound great some sound terrible I don't you know yeah just because it says it's one thing doesn't mean it's going to be great you have to try out every instrument every piece of gear yeah you're right and and i mean and a bass sound is to me that's such an important thing of the mix and 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 the how do you say the it's if you have a crushing bass sound um that is how do you say the the low end is very is you know is right and then the tonal quality is right and you get this crunchy attack this can really drive the guitars as well i love that and 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 i think that i think what got me into that whole thing of that kind of overdriven piano sounding <laughs> bass sound was uh, was maybe on uh, on the maybe queen's on 
Empire could that, that could be, but definitely the the Queensrÿche bass sound, but also Didi Verney from Overkill had that type of clangy bass sound. I don't know if it if that makes any sense to you. <laughs> but, that absolutely makes yeah, sense to me. Cool and um, yeah, and then in the '90s I heard uh, King's X, of course, uh, that that bass sound with his uh, what is that? Is that eight string bass? That's just amazing. So yeah, what uh, strings do you favor? I, I love Diadario Pro Steels for bass. Yeah, I use Ernie Balls. Um, I love those, and but they are really bright when you put them on, and two hours later they're dead. But they sound fantastic, uh, you know, from the straight out of the package or the the box. But yeah, I I think I've heard I think I heard some. Really expensive dead areas, but I don't really remember what that was. Is is that the ones that you're talking about? Maybe. Maybe so. They just sound clangy. They have a ton of like highs and mids that just cut the mix great, and they die super fast <laughs> within uh, 45 minutes. Yeah, it's crazy. It's very expensive to be a bass player, but but it's I mean, it's definitely worth it to to be. Also, I mean, one thing that I don't understand is that if you're spending, I mean, if you have a pretty good budget for a, a recording, then I mean, why not spend, I mean, enough money on on bass strings? I don't get it. But but that's I'm trying to teach people to <laughs> uh, about the importance of of changing strings. Also on guitars, they would be like, no, they're fine. No, we put them on yesterday. They're dead. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's. I mean, it. It's. I don't know why it is like that. It's. It's the same with drum heads. I mean, ideally, you would change uh, heads after every song, and sometimes I try to do that, and not every time. It. It. And sometimes it's. It's. We'll just. Ah, uh, shit. We'll just spend so much money on that, and and then we don't. Especially snare and and toms. But I. I Definitely changes the the snare head every every second song. Yeah, same here. Every second song on this, basically, I look at snare every second or third song, just depending on who the drummer is. Yeah. So and uh, how hard he hits. The bottom toms twice per album. The top toms three times per album, and the snare usually four times per album. Yeah, this sounds like what I do as well. Yeah. More if there's budget and time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if there's budget and time, I like you can't get me not to. No. So <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that'll stop me is budget and time. Yeah, you're right, and it's it's so important. And you will be so much happier when when mixing that, or yeah, you know, just sending that off to another mixer. You know, you know that They'll everything be happy is with just. You. They will be. Yeah. So what about guitar? You're a guitarist. Do you find that you spend more time on guitars than other things, or is that no. like your specialty? Or no, I don't think so. It, it's not like I. Th- I think in a way that that each instrument requires something special. But guitars are like th- that's where I I'm a tuning Nazi as well. Uh, <laughs> I uh, oh shit! I I can't. I mean, if if 
When people come in with their instruments, we always check intonation and you know new strings. And I I check guitars, and if they if they don't, or if they bring, let's say ten guitars, and and most of them are are bad shape, or they have never been intonator or something, then I have a guy that I call, and he either he comes around or I bring all their instruments to this guy, and he he fixes it because that'll just kill a recording process if if the guitars are poorly intonated and and we can't tune a chord or you know but luckily i some years ago i um, i did a band and and we were of i would tune chords in choruses for example i would do yes take this chord no no try again and hold it there and i would tune things and yeah and now it's good and then we would record it and then go to the next chord and it was just terrible you know i hated that and i did an album with pretty mates which is like a an old 80s hard rock band from denmark and uh, they've they've made records since 82 or something like that and i i Work with those guys, and uh, it was killing their guitarist. He was like, "It's it's in tune now," and I was like, "Nope." <laughs> <laughs> and then and he felt terrible. And then on the next production I did with them, he bought a a guitar with with, with Evertune. I was about to ask you about that. Yeah, I've never looked back since then. Uh, he it was amazing. We tracked guitars in one third of the time maybe than that we spend on on the first album because we were playing all the time i mean he would play things and i was like yeah that was good that was that's fine <laughs> the take was cool everything was right <laughs> and he was like oh amazing <laughs> and uh changing strings on it was so easy and we could just you know it was so such a fantastic thing to not think about tuning but just being creative and playing and yeah all those things. So, so I just made sure that I had. Right now, I, I have a, a seven string with Evertune. I have a six string with Evertune, and I have a tele, Telecaster style guitar with uh, Evertune as well. So I can do a lot of different things with those three guitars. And many productions are done with those things because it's. If it's not in tune, it'll it'll never sound right. And and ever tune has just you know changed everything. I think it's such a great thing. It's amazing how much time you spend on tuning guitars in a production, yeah, especially a metal production. It's a ridiculous amount of time. So I think Evertune is one of the best guitar inventions to come out in a long, long time. It is really, yeah. And I have, I mean, I've maybe spent. Yeah, I think you spent much more. I mean, maybe three or four times as much time on tuning guitars than recording, than actually recording. I think so. Or before Evertune, and now it's just you know, you don't spend time on tuning. You just play, and and that's that's such a fantastic thing. And and people that I introduce, you know, bands that are coming into the studio, and I introduce it, and I say, hey, if we have problems with your guitars. Let's use this one, and they're like, "Yeah, fuck, man, we're we're just, I, I mean, and things are just going so much faster, and it's it's uh, then it's fun again uh, to record guitars. Yeah, so yeah, that's really important. Well, we've been talking for a while, and uh, I have quite a few questions here from our audience, and I want to make sure that we get 
to some of them. So do you mind if we switch to that? That's cool. Cool, because I, I don't want to run out of time before no, we no, can no. ask that. So, all right, so let's let's do some audience questions. So here's one from Francesco Filgoy, which is, what are some of the details on fitting orchestral elements in Xerath or Xerath yeah. 3? He says that's his favorite work from you. Yeah, that's cool. That I really love that band as well. It's the, the funny thing is that I don't feel like I'm doing something very special with that. I just think uh, maybe it's um, maybe it's that the that the way that I don't have to fill out everything with guitars, if you know what I mean. I mean, in a usual metal mix, guitars would be very prominent, and and if you have tons of orchestra that you have to fit in, then you can't find space for, for orchestra because the guitars are just all over the place. So I think that, I don't know, I think I, I also do a lot of automation on those types of albums. I mean, when there's room for guitars, when the when the roles kind of switch, when the orchestra is more like a background thing and there's a riff going, I can pull out the guitars and make that the main thing and the orchestra or the, the keyboards or whatever goes into the background. So in many of these mixes, there's a lot of, how do you say, a lot of automation in volume-wise going on. I mean, not like 3 dBs or, you know, something crazy. It's really small, how do you say, increments of, of dB. It's maybe then I lift the guitars maybe half a dB and the the orchestra go, goes down half a dB or vice versa. Mm-hmm. It's um, It's just a big puzzle and trying to be musical with the with the automation i think that's a that's a very important thing and um and also i think that i i normally just i have all the orchestration on a bus where i can put uh some different i i i have normally i have an eq and it's scooping a little bit around maybe 250 to 400, something around that, because many of these um, types of sounds from an orchestra is very, are very prominent in, in that area, and that will fill up space really quickly. I mean, it'll be just like, ooh, <laughs> <Yep. laughs> you know, <laughs> the horns and brass and strings, and they're all, or many of them, really prominent in, in that area. And I need to filter that out to make sure it, it fits in. And then I think that my, I don't know, but my way of mixing is I always feel like I need to make sure that I have space in the mix, if you know what I mean. It There's always enough room. I can always, it's not a, I mean, for example, with mixing Epica, it's, it's the same thing we had. I don't know how many, but may, uh, but I'm not lying if I'm saying 200 tracks of choir, orchestra, you know, tons of things going on that I needed to fit with a heavy metal band. And actually that, that could be a hard thing, but to me it's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but, but it's, I, I feel like I kind of, I'm used to mixing with with uh, I mean, many of the the bands that I work with use keyboards in some way or orchestration or something. So I I, I kind of know how to make room for that. And um, I think that's the same for Sarah that 
there was simply room for it in, in the mix. I've yeah. And do you think that some of it comes down to the way they arrange their songs? Yeah, of course. Also because the, it's uh, I mean with Sarah the 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 orchestrations are such a big part of the of the song. I mean if you just had, I mean it wouldn't be the same adding for example orchestrations to abort it if you that that would be a hard thing because so much stuff is going on all the time whereas Sarath is more sometimes it's just chords that are being struck on the guitars and and actually things are pretty laid back even though it's uh, it's an extreme metal band but it, it's they arrange the songs so so it has room for for those big orchestra parts and that's really clever because i for sarah that was i mean that band is is really something special i think so here's a question from uh marco santana ruiz which is do you have any details on the apparent huge vocal layers of volbeat yeah i do because i track i track <laughs> them all <laughs> and uh, i mean yeah what i do with volbeat is uh, i I think that um, all the all the songs are more or less double tracked. I mean, all all main vocals. And when we get to uh, choruses, I would maybe track uh, him four times. And the same with the backing vocals are done four times as well. And and that that way of double and and triple and quart tracking is maybe a part of that that big vocal sound. Plus, I use. Uh, two, sometimes three different types of delays: a uh, short, a uh, slap, and a uh, and a medium one and a long one, and then a little bit of reverb on it. And and that that whole thing also adds to the to the large <laughs> vocal sound. And I, I that's that's also become um, I think a pretty important part of the Volbeat sound, even though it's. Uh, I haven't mixed the the latest two albums, uh, but but I know that Michael wants it to be like that. Okay, here's one from Robert Major, and said it's been years since Jacob and I have spoken, so this will be fun. What's your preferred guitar rig signal chain these days, in the loop before the amp? <laughs> yeah, funny thing because I I don't think I've ever have had anything in the loop. Um, <laughs> so nothing. <laughs> nothing. No, uh, I I know some people use a little bit of stuff in the loop. I I don't. I, but I have. Um, I think I've some years ago. I I used the Boss RGE10. It's a graphic EQ, like a half unit. You remember those small micro yep. <laughs> <laughs> things? Really noisy, but it sounded fantastic. It and I and I EQ'd the. Um, I, I actually used it a little bit like a tube screamer in front of the amp, in front of the preamp. And um, I really loved doing that. And that EQ can be heard on hundreds of albums I've I've done. But lately I'm using some different types of tube screamer. I'm using the Maxon OD820 a lot. I uh, really like that. But it's not always that I use tube screamers or something like that in front of the the amp it's sometimes just a cable straight into the amp and then we we go and yeah yeah different amps Engel Fireball 60 Engel Artist Edition and I use EVH 5150 a lot 
What else do I use? Yeah, JCM 800 as well, Some from time to time. Classics. Yes. <laughs> yeah, can't go wrong with those. No. So here's one from David Tagbos, which is, I've noticed and loved how you make arrangements fit so well together. Victim of the City by Dune, which I'm pretty sure you mixed, is one of my favorite ever, partly because the details are really on point. Take, for example, how the guitar's bass is pumping with the kick drum in a way that somehow doesn't sound bad or too EDM. I noticed the same thing on the latest Lowrider Betty single. I'm sorry if I'm not very specific here, but could you tell us a bit about your thoughts behind mixing and or producing music that doesn't strictly fit under the basic rock band umbrella? Yeah, cool. It was a long question. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yes, I, I did produce and mix the Dune or Dune, as we call it here in Denmark. It's a Danish uh, rock slash electronic uh, band. And uh, that was actually my first time uh, when I was introduced to side chaining because they had a, a keyboard player who was really into that whole thing. And I was... And we used that on, especially that uh, single "Victim of the City." Um, and the guitars are are side chained to. Um, I think actually we just used uh, we used a kick that was not part of the mix, but that kick sent uh, that kick docked uh, the the compressor on on the guitars. Um, and then of course my I don't know my my way of of mixing things and 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 mastering. Um, made it also duck a little bit on the on the kick hits so so it it had this pumping feeling and uh what else did he want to know <laughs> just just about your basic approach or thoughts for music that's not for mixing music that's not just your normal rock band setup yeah i think it's if, to me it's it's easier to to mix things in a way so you can get I mean if if you have I I on these uh, rock album or rock uh, uh, productions I put on tons of guitars it it's I mean there's even more guitars than than in many of the metal songs that I do but they're all very light in some way they're single coil guitars it's telly and it's strat and it's sg's and they're not you know, ultra heavy humbucker sounding guitars. So, so that makes everything really spacious and and light sounding. So you can get the bass and kick drum to pump and work much more. Whereas in metal, the guitars are are so much fatter and they go so much lower in in the frequencies. Uh, I mean, it's not very often in metal that you can get the pumping feeling working because it'll be all over the place when when people start palm muting and and they're tuned in in B or lower. So I mean, it's the funny thing is that that I don't think I approach recording or mixing rock very much different. I I still want to feel like there's a song and that there's space in the mix. Or it, it's um it's I I think I have the same some kind of starting point in some way. <laughs> But it's just the the basic uh, foundation and the basic uh, sounds that that's been recorded that that kind of dictates where I'm going, so to speak. Did that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> good. So actually, a really good answer. So 
Here's one from Benjamin Mueller, which is, Hey, Jacob, besides your badass productions and mixes, it seems to be an odd question, but your hi-hats are just sick-sounding. I'm curious <laughs> what <laughs> I'm curious what hi-hat model and mic you use for tracking, let's say, on the latest Evergrey records. Do you have any specific processing or miking technique to get those crisp yet silky, lush and wide, epic, larger-than-life-sounding hats? Or is it only a damn good-sounding one? Would be awesome to hear a little bit about that. Perhaps I don't have to dream of damn hi-hats anymore thank you <laughs> yeah oh that's so cool <laughs> um i mean for evergrey i i did not uh, track that so um so i can't really tell you what he used on that one but i think if he feels like he hears the same type of hi-hat on that uh mix than than some of my recordings and 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 mixes um then then it must be something that i do when i mix drums and uh, and the only th- or only well what i have on on the hi-hat normally on the on the channel is like it's just the ssl waves channel and i don't know maybe i think i i take out a lot of harshness and i don't add very much brightness but i think taking out some 3 to 4k and sometimes taking out a lot there makes it sound airy or yeah whatever i can't really i don't have a word for it but um but nice sounding and that's also what i want to hear when i'm recording hats in my studio i i want to hear this airy almost like white noise <laughs> mm-hmm. or pink noise type of sound because um to me the that area is not interesting for me i want to hear the that that feeling almost like a shaker <laughs> i don't know i don't know what i do but i'm i'm glad that he's um impressed with my hi hat uh, mixing skills <laughs> Well, it sounds to me like you just know what you want to hear, and then you go for yeah. it. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right. And and if I'm if I'm working with a drummer and I feel like uh, the hi hat is not working, I I make him open it more. I I try to have them pretty open when recording, actually, because that that makes a, a huge difference. I think as open as possible. All right, here's one from Francesco Filgoy, which is. How do you approach mixing ultra-fast drumming like aborted? Again, it's it sounds a little maybe even arrogant, but I do the same, more or less. I still want to hear real drums, even though it's ultra-fast. Um, I, I, I think I had on the latest aborted that I did, I had a little bit of a discussion with... <laughs> no, not a discussion, but with the, with the drummer, Ken Bideni, because I wanted to sound like a huge drum kit and he was a little but yeah but but it when it's so, so fast we can't have all these things ringing and we can't we can't have the sound of a big drum kit because it's such a fast thing and I'm like why not really I mean so this the only thing I did different on 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 that aborted album compared to many of the other albums that I work on was that I added a little bit of what I would call an unnatural kick. I mean, it was a it was a kick sample from a, I think it was maybe even from from Ken's uh, the, the drummer's own 
uh, trigger module that he brought. I think we added that sample in to have this ultra fast, tight kick, but it's only blended in there. It's I, it's still, I mean, it's played on a Yamaha Fusion jazz fusion kit. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, but it is. And I and and the way I mix drums for aborted is the exact same way. I mean. This the same approach anyway uh, as I would do it for Evergrey or whatever. But of course, there's there's a little less room because everything is so fast. But I I'm still I still want to hear it like it. You feel all the energy from a real drum kit because I. I cannot stand the typewriter type uh, <laughs> drum mixes, you know, where everything is just everything is so extremely unnatural sounding, like plastic drum kits or whatever. So yeah, and I I hope people enjoy that to hear a real drum kit even in fast stuff. I think it's very rare these days, and when it's done right, it's fucking great. Yeah, cool. So here's one from Reed Butterfield. Which is, we're told that even when you become a seasoned pro, you're always learning. What have you learned about audio this past week? <laughs> oh, this past week. Yeah, well, yes, uh, he's right, because I, you're always learning, and you should be, uh, I think. So I've, the funny thing is that, like, the, the last week, or, uh, yeah, the last couple of weeks, I've actually been listening to a lot of your podcasts <laughs> and oh, awesome. uh, yeah because it's uh, even you know when cooking and I was out for a long walk and I listened to some podcasts and and it's it's so cool to hear other people going nuts about the same things and I, that that I go nuts about and um and and some of the things I went hey that, that that's something I could use or or just a a mindset that where I went that's uh, that's such a great thing, you know. But what I've recently had, uh, I learned is that that I can really hear the difference between uh, converters because I'm I'm in the middle of uh, testing some some different ones and 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 it's oh shit, it's night and day. And I'm a little right now. I'm actually a little puzzled about what I'm what I'm going for. I'm yeah switching converters maybe and uh, yeah shit. So that's uh, something that that I can. Uh, lie in my bed and and not be able to sleep over that's uh just crazy (laughs) (laughs) which ones are you looking at i'm actually right now i'm testing apollo 16s and i'm not sure i like them that's maybe a little early um to say but oh shit it's uh yeah i what i use is that i I use uh, lynx aurora 16 and and i i'm switching and and i don't know what to choose it's crazy i i feel like the lynx is probably better than the apollo i feel so too i'm um i had the feeling that the the apollos were they had an extreme amount of high end that i actually actually didn't like and the the apollos were were kind of deeper sounding and had more 3d depth in some or no said did i say yeah, the links um yeah. are sounding more uh, 3d and 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 maybe a little bit crunchy but in a very nice way i think even though they're old i really like them but i i think i gotta test some other stuff <laughs> i think your buddy joel knows uh, about that <laughs> yeah he he's he's into it <laughs> yeah yeah he's got burls 
I know, yes. <laughs> uh, shit. They're very, very nice. <laughs> yeah, I got to test that. Try the Apogee Symphony as well. Uh, yeah. Those are very nice. All right. I, I mean, they're, I don't think they're as nice as the Burls, but they're definitely, I've shot those out next to my Lynx, and they're, I think they're better than the Lynx. Okay. Definitely better than the Apollos. Yeah, because I've, yeah, shit. Apollos are maybe not the way to go for me. Probably not. Just, so here's a one from Joseph, which is, how challenging was it to mix both female and male vocals in the same song with Amaranth? Any techniques to make both sit well? Um, yeah, well, I, I keep them, I think I, I EQ them a little bit different, or I kind of work on them, uh, f uh, how do you say, separated, uh, and I have, for example, Jake on a bus, and I have Elise on another bus, and I can kind of make it work together, but I don't think there's such a huge difference in how I, how I approach it, it it's... As you know, it's no now. It's it's the same vocal chain. It's the same mic they're mm -hmm. using, and um, it's not really much of a difference. It's just the minute an, another person walks in in front of the mic, and 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 it's a different person singing. It you get the characteristics of of that, and 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 for me, it doesn't exactly have to blend perfectly because you you actually want to hear them. A little bit, it it has to stand out, and and I think that 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 comes just naturally. I yeah. Yeah, I mean, two completely different vocalists are going to sound completely different to begin with. Exactly. So. Yeah. So there's no need to approach it differently or EQ it drastically different. I wouldn't do that. I just do more or less the the same thing. Maybe a little, you know, small differences. But you're not reinventing the wheel to vocal sound wise between the two vocalists no and and actually it sounds a little crazy but when i start tracking vocals with uh, bands it's i mean it takes about five ten minutes then i have my vocal sound <laughs> that doesn't sound we, crazy to me actually that that's a great thing <laughs> but i i think some people would think that this is something that's gonna take hours and hours and testing things and i yeah yeah i have a setup that i know works and all the the clients that i work with are happy i feel <laughs> about uh, my setup and and how i uh, treat vocals so well great well jacob it's been fantastic talking to you thank yeah. you so much for coming on the podcast Thank you. It was a, a huge pleasure, really. It was fun. Likewise. I, I Thank you for taking the time and sharing so much with our audience. Yeah, you're welcome. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Focusrite, supplying hardware and software products used by professional and amateur musicians, which enables the high-quality production of music. Focusrite. Sound is everything. Visit Focusrite.com for more information. To ask us questions, Make suggestions and interact. Visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.